Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word given to us in this letter to Titus. We ask that from it we learn not just how to live a godly life that is pleasing to you, but that through godly living we adorn the gospel and thereby become witnesses of you to the watching world, that we be examples also to each other in the church. We ask too that by your Holy Spirit you would transform us by the truths of your word, especially the truths that we find in this letter to Titus. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday evening, we looked at the closing verses of chapter 1, so this evening we begin chapter 2, and we'll be looking at the first 10 verses. In chapter 1, we noted Paul's great concern for these Cretan Christians, uh, Christians living in, in an immoral society, Paul's great concern for them was that they were to live a uniquely Christian and godly life so that their lives became, in a sense, a witness to the reality of the gospel work that God had done in their hearts. In other words, Paul wanted uh, the inner transformation of the heart to be visible in outward, transformed, godly living. In a sense, he wanted these Christians to be living what they professed to believe. And so Paul begins chapter, began chapter 1 by stressing in verse 1 the fact that truth and godliness always go together. And in chapter one, uh, chapter two, verse one. And in fact, uh, let me put it this way: Paul begins chapter one by stressing in verse one the fact that truth and godliness always go together. And from verse one in chapter two all the way to verse eight in chapter three, Paul actually continues to promote that same truth—truth truth that leads to godliness, to holiness and to a distinctive godly living. Is there really describing proper Christian living as being rooted in the gospel? So, when Paul uses the word godliness in verse 1 of chapter 2, he's really talking about a lifestyle that shows we are those whose lives have been transformed by the gospel. And in verses 2 to 10 of chapter 2, Paul really has that godly lifestyle in mind as he sets out uh, the basic principles of Christian, the basic principles of living for, for men and women in the church. And when you read those verses uh, closely, you'll notice he's, he's actually... He makes reference to, to, to the home, to marriage, to family, and even vocation. In other words, Paul wants everyone in the church to live out the grace of God in their lives in every area of life. Why does he do that? It's because the Christian life is based on the work of God in the new birth, in justification, the gift of the Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, and our union 
to Christ. And we will only understand the Christian life if we grasp the foundation on which it's built. And that's why in verse 1, Paul says to Titus, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Notice the word must. It's a command. He must only preach and teach sound doctrines. And that's Paul's primary concern in this letter to Titus. In verse 1, Paul uses the, the phrase sound doctrine. And the Greek word for sound there has to do with health. So sound doctrine, in other words, is teaching that leads to spiritually and morally healthy Christian living. And what should motivate every believer to a holy life is that Christ is in us and we are in Christ. But even if we have that motivation, Christians still need to be guided in how to live. And the guidance that we need, guidance on how to conduct our lives, is found only in the Bible. That's where we find the sound doctrine that leads to spiritually and morally healthy Christian living. And that's why our ethics, our standards of behavior, must flow out of the gospel. Because Christ is not only our savior, but he's our example of how we are to live. It's when our life squares with the gospel that it's in accord with sound doctrine. So if your life isn't matching up with scripture, it's telling you something about your lifestyle. So last Sunday, as I say, we looked at the last seven verses of chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, and, and we noted there that the false teaching to the Cretan church was really a lie, a lie based very much on a subjective, self-centered outlook on life, which ultimately led to ungodly behavior, which led again to ungodly living. And we saw in those verses a direct contrast in the behavior of the false teachers with the behavior of what was required of church leaders. We saw that in, in chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, by the way. So chapter 1 really ends with a description of the effects of false teaching on, 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 on the Christian life. And so having shown in chapter 1 why false teaching needs to be silenced and rebuked, Paul, in chapter 2, now, now essentially moves on to explaining how to put that sound doctrine into practice in order to live a godly life. And that's why chapter 2 begins in verse 1 with Paul essentially telling Titus to preach and teach only what is in the Bible. 
He wants Titus not to teach the myths and the commandments that seem to be uh, the favorite with some in the church. See, Paul wants Titus to teach only what is in Scripture because for the Apostle Paul, true biblical teaching is essential for healthy Christian experience and especially for living the Christian life. Over and over again in all his writings, Paul emphasizes that gospel truth is for life and that sound doctrine is essential to healthy Christian living. He does that because Paul's goal in teaching sound doctrine is not simply to pass on information, but that by that sound doctrine there'll be a transformation in a person's life. The Word of God is alive and active, and it does transform lives. And so having laid out the standards required for church leaders in chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, Paul in chapter 2, in our text for tonight, verses 2 to 10, now lays down what the expected standards of behavior are for the rest of the church. Notice he starts with the leaders. He tells them how they are to love, what they are should do. Now he moves on to the rest of us. He's basically focusing on all the different generational groups that you find in any church. Older men, verse 2. Older women, verse 3. Younger women, verses 4 and 5. Younger men, verses 6 to 8. And bond slaves, 9 to 10. And there's a reason why why Paul tells Titus to start with the older men and the older women in the church. And it's because godly older men and women are a blessing to the church because they bring spiritual strength and spiritual endurance and spiritual and wisdom to all of us. Those who have had older members as mentors in the church will understand what I've just said. But having said that, Paul assumes that these older men and older women are really walking in the ways of righteousness. Because getting old and living an ungodly life doesn't serve any purpose. And I think it's fair to say that much of today, much of society today, has been overtaken by what socialists refer to as a youth-driven culture. And I think that's partly because we've neglected God's call to train up the next generation of young people in the way they should go. And so if we are to redirect the paths of younger people in the church, the older folk in the church must begin by taking up the charge that's given to them to come alongside younger men and women and to teach them and I'm quoting a Puritan here, to teach them the old, ancient values of God's word. That's essentially what our text for tonight, I hope, will teach us. So, let's take a closer look at what Paul has to say about each of the different 
generational groups we find in the church. Firstly, older men, verse 2. Older men are the first group addressed because Scripture lays upon men the primary responsibility for servant leadership at home and in the church. I can give you scriptural references for that. Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. So while the Apostle Paul in verse 2 refers to older men, he actually has in mind all believers, everyone in the church, whatever age, that they should also pursue the same character traits he gives in this verse. And what we see in verse 2 is a picture, really, of the kind of character men are to have that is essentially based on a healthy inner spiritual life. To have those character traits, a man must be reborn spiritually and must have his heart renewed daily by the word of God. Notice it says, an older man is to be sober-minded. It's not really referring to drunkenness there. It's really referring to a man being clear-headed or sensible. And I think Paul lists that first because a man is less likely to panic and make rash decisions in a crisis situation if he is sensible, clear-headed, or sober-minded. And it's fair to say that mature people are more likely to be calm in the middle of a crisis. And sober-mindedness, I think, is really a trait of maturity. But how does a man become sober-minded? As I said, it starts with a man having his mind renewed by the word of God. Paul tells us that in Romans 12, verse 2. It's only those whose minds have been renewed that can follow the direction of the Holy Spirit. Paul again tells us that in Romans 8, verse 5. And it's this renewed mind that enables a man to have his thoughts and his intentions and his motives centered and focused on the Lord. And when he does that, as Isaiah tells us in 26 verse 3, he is kept in perfect peace. We also see that the older man is to be dignified. That is, he's to be a man of gentle dignity, a dignity really that inspires confidence in others. And we could say that he's to have a way about him that commands respect by the way he carries himself. Notice also it says he is to be self-controlled. And the word used for self-control there refers particularly to the mind and thought. In other words, he's to be a sensible man known for sound judgment. In other words, older men should show restraint and dignity in all things. That, by the way, is in contrast to the excessiveness of lust that marked 
the Cretan culture. We see, I think it's in chapter 1, verse 12. And it's fair to say we, we see the same excesses in our culture today. But we need to be aware that dignity and self-control aren't traits that develop overnight. It takes a lifetime for those traits to develop. That's why each one of us has to work at them daily. Notice too, the traits that I've mentioned in a sense could be said to be outward characteristics, but Notice inwardly he is to be sound in the faith, in love, and in endurance. There are three things there, and and in, in a sense those three things are really the three great virtues we find in the New Testament. I think it's 1 Corinthians 13 we find faith, hope, and love. That's what sound in the faith, in love, and endurance is all about. It's, it's the inner life of faith, hope, and love that shapes the outward man. And we need to understand that these traits can't be cultivated outside of Scripture without the Gospel. So what verse 2 teaches us is that godly traits are grounded really in a sound faith in Christ, in a love for his word, and in a steadfastness in the truth through which the Holy Spirit produces his fruit in us. That's essentially what Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23 teach us. So it's only the power of the Holy Spirit that enables men to have an outward, loving, dignified strength that is based on a healthy inner spiritual life. And that needs constant prayer for God's grace to enable men to be like that. And that's why a man's devotional life is absolutely vital to being the man that Paul describes here. Secondly, older women, verses 3 and four. Notice Paul only used one verse to address older men. And in the Greek, he actually uses three verses to talk about the role of older women in the church. And I think he does that because it's an indication of the important role that not just older women, but women generally play in the church. If you look, I'll I'll only give you two examples from Scripture. Samuel, sorry, my mind's gone blank. I'll, I'll remember it later. But as I say, Paul uses more verses to talk about the role of women in the church than he does about men because of the role that women very often play in nurturing people within the church. We saw something about, uh, in relation to Samuel, as I say, the role that his mother played in his life. So the first thing Paul says in verse 3 is that older women must be reverent in the way they live. 
by reverent behavior, poor means of behavior that includes self-control, dignity, sober-minded, things that are only produced by the Holy Spirit as a woman sets her mind on the Lord. And Peter actually tells us that in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 8. So Paul isn't saying something any different here to what he says about the old man. He expects the same standard, the same high standard of behavior in women as he does in men. And just as with older men, the character traits Paul outlines for older women in verses 3 and 4 are only brought about by the grace of God through a firm and dedicated commitment to Bible teaching. The phrase translated reverent behavior in the original Greek is a term used to describe women who were revered for being holy in word and deed in the first century. So Paul is using that kind of language to show that reverent behavior is the only appropriate behavior for a person who is holy, who is set apart for Christ. So biblically speaking, this means that an older woman must conform to the Bible's definition of holiness, which she and indeed the rest of us will only know as we study the word of God. That's what Psalm 119 verse 9 actually tells us. Notice what else Paul tells Titus in verse 3. He tells the older women not to be slanderers. That is, not to malign someone's character, either to their face or behind their back. This is something, not just women, but every one of us in the church need to be aware of. We need to be acutely aware of, especially in our own day, because I think it's a sin that is very unconsciously, that is often unconsciously tolerated in the church. We need to be careful we don't repeat stories about others without actually checking whether they're true or not. We need to avoid giving or passing on inappropriate information about others who don't need to know that information. And the one thing we ought never to do is repeat personal or so-called sensational rumors that we hear about others. We ought never to pass on anything we hear about others. And thirdly, younger women, verse 3. And I think it's fair to say that what the Apostle Paul teaches in these verses, particularly in relation to women, seems profoundly countercultural to our day, particularly in the West. But that's often because people in the West tend to look at these verses through modern eyes. Historians and sociologists say that love 
only became a motive for marriage in about the middle of the 19th century. But for much of world history, people married for reasons other than love. Even today, in other cultures, people marry not for love, but for reasons such as economic need or the preservation of social status or even politics or even religion for that matter. Love was never a factor at all in the first century. And women usually had no say in who their husbands would be. That is what marriage was like in the first century. That's the context Paul is writing from. So it's likely that in Paul's day, young wives would probably have had very little or even no affection for their husbands because the marriage would have in all likelihood been arranged without their consent. You see what I mean by people in the West when they look at these verses, really struggling with them. That's the context Paul is writing from. That's the context, by the way, in parts of the world even today. But remember that if these women were Christians, they were obligated to love their husbands because that's how God designed marriage. Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. So what Paul's saying in verses 3 and 4 is that the older women were to help these younger wives, essentially, help them to learn to love their husbands and children. Not indulgently, but in a way that seeks the well-being of spouse and child. And that's a principle to be followed even in our own day. And women who are older are more likely to have been married for a longer time and therefore more likely to know what it means to love and to care for one's family, however difficult things may be. Their experience and insight is, is invaluable in, in helping these new wives adjust to the responsibilities of keeping a home and, and, and as the children come along to look after the children. And as older women with godly marriages mentor younger women, all families in the church benefit. And when there's harmony in the family, there's harmony in the church. Remember the church is your new family. So in verse 5, Paul instructs young women to live in a godly way. Notice he actually focuses on five specific areas. First, young women are to be self-controlled or sensible. That's exactly what's expected of older men, by the way, in verse 2. Second, they are to be pure. And that word pure, Paul actually mentions three times in chapter 1. I think it's verse 15. It's saying something about how important purity is. And thirdly, women are to be busy at home or housemakers. 
as is the better translation. And incidentally, that phrase doesn't prohibit women from working outside the home. Rather, it actually highlights the critical value that women have in caring for the home. And I think Paul says that because we know from chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, that it's likely that some of these Cretan Cretan women were probably lazy and were more, more concerned about pleasure than they were about their families. So what Paul's saying there is that godly young women are to be known for their concern for their home. He's not saying they're not allowed to have a regular job like men. And fourth, these young women were to be kind. Notice also this, this trait, kindness, is also part of the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians 22-23. And it's a trait that is applicable to every Christian without exception. And fifth, young women were to be submissive to their own husbands. And I think Paul says that because it's meant to be in contrast to the culture of non-believers in in Crete, where we know from extra-biblical literature that the wives often disrespected their husbands by their behavior. And I think it's interesting that Paul actually develops the concept of wives submitting to their husbands Elsewhere, He actually writes about that in Ephesians 5, and I think in 1, and, and Peter does the same, I think, in 1 Peter chapter 3. In all these instances, this submission is not spoken of or not meant to be about living as a servant, and therefore never taking initiative. Rather, it's, it, it means living with love under a husband's leadership. It's important we understand that Paul compares Christian marriage with the relationship between Christ and the church. And just as Christ loves his church, husbands ought to love their wives likewise. Fourthly, he turns his attention to younger men It's actually verses 6 and 8 that he does that. Verse 7 is actually addressed to Titus himself. But coming back to verse 6, there Paul says that the key to wise and holy living is self-control. Notice that to every single group so far, he said you must be self-controlled. And he says that because self-control is vital for anyone seeking to live out the Christian life. It's because lack of self-control or lack of restraint was typified by this Cretan society. And I think it's, it, it typifies our society today. We see a great deal of self-control, people doing what they think they should do rather than what they ought to do, what duty calls for. And again, notice self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit we see in Galatians 5. 
And again, the apostle commends it as a trait that allows us to enjoy what's God, what God has created for us. It's self-control that allows us to enjoy the things that God's given us without becoming enslaved by them. Without self-control, you will always be subject to your passions. So even though Paul is addressing young men, this principle of self-control applies to every single person of whatever age in the church. I notice, I, I remember I said, verse 7 is addressed directly to Paul. He's speaking directly, uh, sorry, to Titus. Paul is speaking in verse 7 directly to, to, to Titus, and he's saying, Titus, you have a special obligation to exemplify the moral and spiritual qualities that I've been speaking about. To put it another way, he's telling Titus to show integrity and dignity in the way he conducts himself. And by extension, that instruction applies to all who have a leadership position in the church, elders, pastors, and teachers of all kinds in the church. And by that word integrity in verse 7, Paul's referring to soundness or incorruptibility. And by dignity, he means honor and respect. And we know in, in his writings, Paul often encourages people to live respecting others. He teaches us that in Romans 13. And he teaches that we are to inspire respect in others by our conduct. And I think it's 1 Timothy 3, he says something about that. We do that in the way that we dress, in the way we treat our spouses, in the way we treat others, and in the way we treat those who have ruled over us, in the church and outside the church. And so in verse 7, Paul is calling really for church leaders who are honest, who are diligent, and who fulfill their calling with fear and trembling, in a sense. And while he's speaking to church leaders, there is also speaking directly to everyone else in the church, each one of us is called, as Paul himself tells us in Romans 8, verse 13, each one of us is to mortify sin, which means that we are to grow in grace daily. And we are also to show grace to others, especially when they repent of things they've done And in verse 8, Paul returns again to younger men and says they are to have sound speech. In other words, they are to have speech which can't be criticized in any way. In verse 8, there's actually a hint 
of what theologians refer to as apologetics, where apologetics is where you give, an, uh, in a sense, a defense of the gospel, where you explain why you believe what you believe and why you believe it to be true. And what Paul says in verse 8, Peter also mirrors in 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 3, verses 15 to 16, Paul instructs Christians to live in such a way that no one can attack their character or no one can embarrass them by the way they, they, they live or behave. And Paul is saying the same thing, that we, whenever we, in a sense, when we do outreach or when we defend the gospel faith, not only should we be able to explain why we believe what we believe, but we should do so in a way that doesn't antagonize others. We should be gracious in the way that we speak to others. So sound speech is an essential trait, I would argue, for every believer. Fifthly, bond servants or slaves, verses 9 to 10. In those verses are included teachings for slaves or bond servants because they were a common part of first century culture. Slaves and bond servants were, were the norm in Paul's day. And I think it's quite significant that in, in verse 1 of chapter 1 of, of this letter to Titus, Paul describes himself there as a slave of God. And I think with that in mind, understanding who he was as a slave, I think that's, that explains to some degree Paul's great concern for slaves and servants' well-beings. That's something you find in his letters. And this is why in his letter to Philemon, he urges masters to free slaves whenever possible. Paul's commands, although addressed to slaves or bond servants, as it were, apply to anyone operating under the authority of someone else. And according to this text, bond servants are to obey their master in everything. And they are to strive to be, so, be well-pleasing. And that phrase, well-pleasing, is similar to God the Father saying he was well-pleased with Jesus the son at his baptism. We read that in Matthew 3, verse 17. See, we are supposed to be well-pleasing in the same way that Jesus pleased his father. Because that phrase, well-pleasing, really reflects a person who is performing or living according to the will of the father. That's what pleases the father when we live in the way we are supposed to live. So likewise, a servant, or even an employee for that matter, is not to be argumentative. And he's to, to comply with all instructions given to him. 
And just like slaves in, in, in the first century, a servant or even an employee for that should seek the good of both his master and in his household or his company, to put it in, in the modern context. Why does Paul say all of that? If you look at verse 10, it says, so that the actions of the believer will bring glory to God and his truth. So what Paul's saying in verse 10, in other words, is that slaves are to demonstrate faithfulness and to give their masters every reason to trust them. All their actions are to be noble. And in, in, in a sense, their motives or their, their, their goals of being servants or employees. The lesson for us today is that we are to make the teachings of God appealing to others by the way we live our lives. An ancient slave had no direct influence over his or her master. But through godly behavior, they could influence their master to come to faith in Christ. Is that how we live our lives today? Can people look at our behavior and be influenced by what they see there? Does our behavior reflect what we profess to believe. And what's, what's interesting about verse 10 is this. We see Paul, a Jew, writing to Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile. And yet Paul refers to God as our Savior. And that means that Paul saw both himself and Titus as brothers in Christ, part of the same single family of God. And that's a theme that he repeats often in Titus. That there is unity through Christ among all who believe him. Paul writes about that in Romans 10, by the way. I think it's in verses 11 and 13. And so Paul is saying to the whole church that we are to imbibe, to take in, to eat, as it were, healthy teaching, healthy biblical teaching, so that we encourage one another, so that every one of us, old and young, is encouraged and has the truth applied to his or own or his or a specific situation and that we are all to live with a view to adorning the doctrine of our God and Savior in every respect. Adorning the gospel means that we are to live in such a way that the Christian lifestyle becomes attractive to those who see us. God's word doesn't merely teach us how to live the Christian life. But it's through God's words that we come to know our Savior, Jesus Christ, as a person. 
And ultimately, Scripture is given to us in order to point us to God the Trinity through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we study his word, may we keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus and get to know him. And in knowing him, may we live like the Christians we are meant to be. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your truth and for your wisdom and practical guidance we receive from it. We are conscious that we need your Spirit to apply and work the truths and wisdom of your word in us. And so we ask that you soften our hearts to respond to your truth and grow us in grace that we may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.